live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working-class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon. Hello, everyone. I am Elisa Batista, and I am your host of Heart of a Heartless World. We are a podcast of the Democratic Socialists of America, where we interview those brave souls who dare to love in a world of war, sickness, and poverty. One of these people is our guest, Dr. Edgar Rivera Colon. Dr. Rivera Colon is a medical anthropologist who trains African-American and Latino-Latina HIV and AIDS activists in research methods to develop community-level interventions. For the last 15 years, he has been conducting ethnographic research on New York City's house ball community. For our listeners, the house ball community is the drag ball community. He is an expert on Latino gay and bisexual male sexual cultures and HIV and regularly trains public health professionals in cultural competency in working with Latino, Latina, LGBTQ communities. Dr. Rivera Colon is now working on a book which is called, could you remind me again? Oh, it's called uh, Love Comes in Knots, Meditations in the American Labyrinth. Oh, I can't wait for it to come out. (laughs) Well, I, for one, also cannot wait to hear more from our guest, Dr. Edgar Rivera Colon. Hello and welcome. Oh, thank you very much, Elisa. It's a a pleasure to be here and certainly to be amongst my DSA comrades. Although I'm not a member of DSA, I see them as a great organization that's doing wonderful work. And I'm so glad to be on the podcast here and to be able to speak to you, certainly, and to talk about these kind of important themes, especially now that we're in this multiple set of of really crises that at this point is being you know, most, you know, in, uh, understood as the COVID-19 crisis, but we really have about four or five crises occurring at the same time. Yes, and we're going to parse through all those crises. But first, I want to know, how did you grow up to become a medical anthropologist? Uh, <laughs> considering that you're in New York, I'm, preser- I'm presuming that you are Puerto Rican or hail from a Puerto Rican family? Yes, I, I do. My parents were born uh, on the island. My father's from a, a little mountain town, the center of Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico has this sort of central mountain range called La Cordillera Central, uh, Bonito. And my mom is from the, the coastal area, a uh, very strong historically sugar planting and sugar cutting area called Salinas, which I think folks who've been to Puerto Rico probably know it as a town on the way to one of the other big cities in uh, Puerto Rico besides San Juan Ponce, uh, the right. big city, Mayagüez Ponce and San Juan. So I come, so they came here and they met, like many Puerto Ricans, they met here in uh, New Jersey. Um, and uh, my parents were factory workers. My dad was a factory worker and so was my mom. And um, I think um, probably I was 
always, I think I was always as a kid interested in justice. Um, and I grew up in a form of Catholicism, which was pretty liberal. It wasn't like, you know, repressive or anything. And, um, you know, through a series of events, I tell my students always that I became a medical anthropologist, mostly by historical accident. My original training was in gender and sexuality. And as the AIDS crisis exploded, um, I got involved in a lot of HIV AIDS work. Personally, uh, I had two cousins whose wives died uh, first of HIV and then they died of HIV. And like many uh, Boricuas, many Puerto Ricans, uh, both of them had served in the military, served in Vietnam and had uh, come back uh, with a heroin addiction and mm-hmm. um, shared their needles and uh, died early on in the crisis. So that sort of, you know, um, stayed in my consciousness. And um, through that, I slowly started to think about working with the community. I did wind up doing that. And I think the first, like, I did, I, I started doing community education early on, but I think the first gig, literally, I did in public health was at the AIDS hotline in New York City. Um, and uh, later on, I went to graduate school and became a medical anthropologist because there was an absolute need for this kind of uh, work at the time. Um, and yet again, you know, we see this public health crisis cropping up and somehow I'm feeling I'll probably be, I actually am going to be involved in some of the work uh, in terms of COVID-19 with some colleagues of mine who are progressive and, you know, what really critical sort of revolutionary public health people. Wow. Thank you for doing that and for sharing. Um, I too am Boricua. My uh, mother is from Canovenas, which is outside of, of San Juan, yep. uh, one of the three <laughs> major cities. Uh, my parents had raised me Catholic. And like you, it was not, I personally did not know of any of the kind of right wing uh, pro-life protesters until I was in college and went to a Planned Parenthood. And I remember being absolutely shocked because right. that was so not what we were taught. We were taught that it was all about um, you know, being, uh, you know, treating your neighbors with, you know, uh, the way you want to be treated and the poor and Catholic guilt, of course, for not helping yeah. the poor. Right. Um, that's the Catholicism I come from. But, um, but, you know, although my mom and almost all of her family in Puerto Rico are evangelical Christians, um, mm. when it came to anything relating to sex or sexuality, we just didn't talk about it. Um, right. How do you broach these topics with your family, Latinos and, and religious people in general? I, I mean, I think that's a really uh, it's been a challenge. I mean, part of it is, you know, that. A lot of people don't talk about sexuality, right? It's, it's not. That's, it's that's not true. Right? That's it's true. not like yeah. a, a Latinx or Latino Latina thing. I think um, um, in many ways we we haven't even begun to understand the role of sexuality in our lives in terms of politics, in terms of all kinds of things. So I think. Um, in the Latino community, I think one of the things that I've seen in my research with colleagues from Colombia is that for a lot of people, the religious institutions, the churches and so on, uh, have been a source of stigma for them at the same time that they understand the need for spirituality. And the way I think the best way to, to broach these kind of subjects is to talk about love, right? What does it yes. mean to love? And I think like from a spiritual standpoint, like a, a, what I would call political or revolutionary spirituality, the reason we want to lift barriers from loving is because uh, 
it's really in loving, in creative work, in meaningful labor that we're most human, right? And I think that if you bring any, the discussion to the question of love, what is love? What, are the, what, is, what is the essence of love? Especially Christians, you know, God is love in that sense. We can begin to break those barriers through, right? And I think that for me at least, um, you, I, the question we always have to ask ourselves is, you know, who's our neighbor? And how do we encounter God if not through the other, through this other person right in front of me, right? That's the, mm-hmm. the sacrament of the other person. And I think that one of the things I would say is, in our community, we need more open discussion around it, but it has to be tied to gender too, right? Um, yes. Because uh, gender and sexuality are connected. Um, I think people are very invested sometimes in very homophobic and transphobic discourses because they have fairly narrow understandings of what gender is, right? And we need to be clear that really, for me at least, um, the basis of sexual liberation at the very beginning has to be like a feminist consciousness, right? Because so much of sexuality is tied into the emotions and labor and all the labor that people who are are on like the feminine spectrum or seen as cis women or trans women are given by society. Like think about just the COVID-19 crisis and people won't see this as a sexual thing or a gender thing. It's all women nurses, Doing this That's work. true. They are the right? frontline workers or even like your supermarket cash. You know, my mom is a supermarket cashier. She's going to work every day. Right. Um, yeah, right. It's, it's women. It's, it's all these, it's the teacher, the oldest. And so it seems to me like if we can have a dialogue around gender and sexuality and see that rigid notions, closed notions of either get us into trouble right? They get us to trouble and they make us unhappy. They make us more violent. They make us lonelier, you know, then I think we create those spaces in our community. I think our community understands the notion that we, of people needing each other. You know, we're not, we're not radical individuals. That's not part of our sort of heritage, you know, Uh, we're, we're communalists. We're people who believe in community. We believe in connecting to people. And I think that this is uh, an area where you can bring a lot of insight to people. And I, I, and also the same thing, we have to challenge the Christian churches. Like uh, we have to really say to them, no, uh, you know, uh, this God that is loving loves everybody. And mm-hmm. your church may have a problem with LGBTQ people, but God doesn't. And you don't own God. Right. You don't owe God's love. Right. And I think that's a way to, to sort of confront it, uh, to try to talk about it in our community. And, and you know, and it's it's it, on the like family level. It's like one person comes out and that creates space for a lot of other people to come out. Right. Um, it, but it's not enough coming out. We can't put the burden on people coming out. We have to create a, a politics and a civic society and a culture that is sex positive. Uh, gender open, right? And mm-hmm. very much interested in letting people discover whatever the desires and pleasures are, you know, in, in you know, all kinds of ways. Like, I didn't even think about, like, I mean, to, to go to a territory that would shock most Christians. Um, I actually think that the idea of, like, dyadic monogamous relationships as the model forever for all human civilization is a bad idea. 
You know, I think we can think about polyamory. We can think about different forms of family. We can think about all these things and figure out for ourselves, why did we accept this model that there's just straight and gay or there's just this and that? What happened to us that we got there, right? When we don't need to be there. So I think there's a lot of stuff to talk about. And certainly uh, socialists, people like us, we have to be open. We have to be the people to say, yeah, we need better ways of organizing sexuality and gender. I mean, a very simple thing. When I was taking care of my mother who had Alzheimer's, I had full coverage through Columbia. But really, I, I should have been able to say, I live with my mother. My mother should get the coverage because I live with her. You know, but our idea yeah. is, you know, you have to be in a marriage, right? <laughs> and your partner can get it, right? But why can't it be, you know, um, let's say, especially for us, like, you know, I'm raising my nephew or I'm raising my niece, right? Why can't they be the people that I decide to give my coverage to? It, 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 a lot of this stuff around, you know, the heterosexual model as the model of the world, it gets us into trouble. It really, it, it's not, it's not healthy. It's not healthy for heterosexuals. You know, <laughs> I think straight people need liberation. <laughs> you well, know? no, I, and I think it doesn't even benefit uh, most people in our community. I mean, I've yeah. always raised my children, so I am divorced and I live right. in a house with a cousin from Cuba. My father's Cuban, uh, two teenagers you know, like the thing is, is that you're right. Like, even though my cousin is helping me raise my kids, you know, we're exactly, we're not recognized as the, the, the right type of family arrangement right. to uh, receive benefits like unemployment if somebody's unemployed or, or yeah, um, th- that is one of my complaints. A lot of abuelitas, for example, raising grandkids. Yes and are not, or tias, um, you know, yeah, the, like we're very communal extended family living with us. And yet that is not recognized as family legally. No, it's not. And I think that, that, that problem that you just cited, like, why can't you, I don't know if, if you have the, if your cousin has the better health insurance, why can't he claim your two kids or what have you? Right. And I think yeah. that that's, that's the thing that we should talk about. And the reason this exists where you have to be in a monoga, mana, what heterosexual monogamous, or now it's, you know, same sex or opposite sex. That model is not that great for a lot of people. Right. And I think that that's the kind of thing that we have to talk about. So the question of sexuality and sexual openness and gender openness, it can actually be a, a door into really rethinking the redistribution of resources in the society we're living in. And you work with the most vulnerable communities when it comes to public health. And that is especially true today because of the coronavirus pandemic. How can we best support those who are sick and in our LGBTQ Latinx communities, brothers and sisters? Well, I think we have to like be clear that poverty is a serious problem in the Latinx LGBTQ community. And um, I think we 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 get lost in the visibility question, who's visible, who's not. But I think that there's two things that we need to deal with. One is poverty and one is violence, violence against trans women in particular, Mm -hmm. uh, who have been subject to basically homicide and uh, have uh, credible problems to deal with in like just getting a job being able to get a job without being discriminated against. So I think if, if we want to support the LGBT 
Q community in this time, in this crisis and the multiple crises that we're talking about, really, um, then we need to have like redistribution of wealth. We need to attack. But there is no reason for poverty in this country. There's no objective reason for it. I mean, I know there are people who make money off of it. Right. In the sense that if you have enough poor people in a society, you can keep wages down. Right. And you can give them the worst jobs under the worst conditions. Right. But I think that what we need to do is realize that poverty, racism and violence are key LGBTQ issues, Uh, certainly for the Latinx and the black community and the Asian community. Certainly that's the case. And I can only imagine that at this time, many in our LGBTQ Latinx community, um, and if they are sick and don't have ties with their families of origin, they, they, they must feel very isolated. Um, how can we reach out to these folks and support them? Yeah, no, I think that's very important to do that. And to also, like right now, I think one of the big things that we should start thinking about is mutual aid. And it can be like I know some comrades of mine in the South Bronx who, you know, on the weekend, they're giving out sandwiches to folk. I mean, it's simple. I mean, it's the simplest Mm -hmm. thing in the world, but they're doing that. And I think what we need to do is in the LGBTQ community is is have those kind of outreaches to people, check ins with people, especially those people who have more resources or even if they don't have resources, they know how to connect people to each other. I mean, we just lost. uh Lorena Bugers, um, one of our, yes. you know, sort of uh, Borjas, I should say, Lorena Borjas, uh, trans uh, Latina activist, uh, many years undocumented, working in Jackson Heights, Queens, which is a hub of Latinx LGBTQ bars and community organizations. And that's what she did. She, you know, she would, you know, walk around with her little cart full of all kinds of information, resources for trans Latinas, especially those trans Latinas who were doing uh, sex work, uh, many of them undocumented. I'm sure some of them HIV positive. And we need that kind of mutual aid, that kind of looking out for each other and from for everybody, right? And, and when we think about the Latinx community, we can't, we can't think about the people in the suits, right? The people in the suits can be mouthpieces for corporations, for governments, whatever, right? We have to think about the majority of our people. The majority of Latinx people in this country are working people. They're the working poor. Uh, they're, you know, they're the, the, the checkout people. They're working at Walmart. They're working at the fast food joints. They're working in the hospitals cleaning. They're working, you know, as, as paraprofessionals in schools. Uh, they're doing all kinds of work. And so when we think about a Latinx agenda in the United States, clearly immigration justice, clearly amnesty for the undocumented, and clearly redistribution of wealth, right? We need to have a system that redistributes wealth. And, you know, Bernie Sanders and that campaign um, really opened up uh, for the Latinx community, especially because they were solid. Many of them were solid. Many of our folks were solid supporters of the Bernie campaign and saw the possibilities in the Bernie campaign. Um, Opened up for us a whole set of possibilities that didn't exist before. I, I think I told you in the Spanish version of this podcast that I, I've been a socialist since I was about 17. And this is the first time 
I see, you know, that socialism amongst um, uh, a chunk of the population, people from 18 to about 45 or so, is, is a good idea, right? The baggage of the Cold War, the anti-communism, it's over for that generation. They want a better life. And we can only do that by redistributing wealth. And I also had added in that, yes, in the Spanish version as well, that I don't think it's a coincidence that Latinx people are in many ways leading the revolution from the Bernie Mm -hmm. Sanders. We were the single ethnic uh, minority, largest ethnic minority supporting him to the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's and Yulín Cruz's of of San Juan, Puerto Rico, the the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico. and it's because of the values, the communal values that we were raised with, our Christian values, too, that really informed yeah. that economic philosophy. Yep, yep. And, and I think that that's, that's really it. You know, it's um, one of the things that I learned from one of my sort of political mentors in New York uh, was that unity, political unity, is based upon uh, shared concrete needs and the recognition of those differences of those needs. So unity is not like a theoretical thing. Unity, political unity, for us in the socialist left, right, and those of us who are Latinx and part of the socialist left, people of color who are socialists, unity is based upon the recognition that we have these needs, and they may be different, right? So if I have kidney failure and I need dialysis three days a week, uh, for example, my needs are different than someone who does it, clearly, right? But it's that recognition of those concrete shared needs that builds unity. And I think what Latinx people were seeing is, hold on, we have this state that has targeted us, that has jailed our children in prisons, in cages like animals, uh, that have stigmatized us, has seen us as source of crime and all this other stuff. And they're doing all this work low wage work. And here's someone or here's a program that's saying, no, that's not legit. That's not real. And it was connecting with those needs of class, right? The needs of class, but also the other needs like recognition. Like we we should have, you know, amnesty for undocumented people in this country. Um, so I think you're right. I think that our folks are very much uh, have been uh, impressed by Bernie. Uh, and I think that space has opened up. Um, and we're going to have to take advantage of it. We're going to have to figure out how to take advantage of that space and build. Uh, the election will be over in November, whatever the outcome. You know, hopefully Trump will be defeated. I have a feeling he just may be. Um, but we also have to remember that once the election is over, we still have a movement to build and pressure to put on the government and the corporations. Yes, no, agreed. And speaking of you answered my uh, next question, but yes, this is this is an unusual time, but yet also a, a an opportunity for social movement building, both the pandemic and now the elections in November. What do we need right. to do to ensure that Latinx people vote? Well, I think, first of all, messaging, 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 right? Um, getting people out to vote. You, you have to have concrete, like, ability to vote. And that means mobilizing the various institutions in our communities, whether they're civic groups or unions or churches, what have you, just to get people to the door to vote, to get them to the door to vote. Now, this is presupposing 
that the election isn't canceled, right? <laughs> that some craziness yes. doesn't happen with Trump. So in a, a relatively rational context, right? And that we don't have a second wave because that could change uh, voting uh, behavior. Uh, we need to do all the traditional things that we do to get out the vote, but we also need to engage the community in their language, in their culture. And I think there's going to be a huge mobilization to get out the vote. I think people are going to be ready to, if, if they're given the opportunity, right, to vote, yes. they will vote, you know, and, and be strategic. Like, you know, honestly, I'm in New Jersey. I'm moving over to California. Those are solid blue states, right? You know, I mean, that's important that they, you know, we get the message out that people get out to vote. But it's really these battleground states where you also have to push, where Latinos are too, the South. Latinos have yes. grown enormously in the South. You know, and, and, and some folks, a number of folks are now can vote. They're citizens. They can vote. Push those things. But we have to find all the possible ways in which we can do that. Now, for me, as a, as, as a revolutionary socialist, elections are not the answer, but they're a tool, right? They're a tool, like any other tool in terms of organizing. And we also have to have a plan for our community, the Latinx community, after the election. If there's a Democrat in there, we got to push that person. Right. Yes. Because they're going to want to go to the same okie dokie. They want to go on. They want to go back to, you know, Clinton. And and that's not going to work. That's simply not going to work. We're, it, we're, the, the process is the the political collapse in this country is so far gone that the old answers don't work. And I, I mentioned earlier that I said there were four crises going on here. Right. One is yes. a fundamental economic crisis. Right. That mimics the Great Depression. Two is a climate crisis that's persistent, right? Three is the uh, COVID-19 crisis. And the other crisis is the political crisis of the Democratic and Republican Party. The Democratic Party got its lunch eaten last election because it chose a candidate that I don't think was going to win. Everybody knew they should, Bernie would, might have had a chance with Trump. And the Republican Party also got its lunch eaten by somebody who basically just came in from the outside and got rid of all the basically political elites of that who they were running for president. Right. So what we see is four crises at the same time. The COVID-19 and the climate and economic crisis are connected. What we're seeing, COVID-19 comes out of capitals deforestation, uh, penetration of areas where they hadn't penetrated before, what we call zoonotic diseases, when human beings uh, are connected to animals that they haven't been close to, and the transfer of viruses into human populations. And therefore, maybe uh, in that case, not in the case of COVID-19, which is really SARS-2, not having immunity, right? That is not going to stop because capital is going to keep on doing this kind of disastrous uh, uh, strategies to extract more and more value out of the environment. So what we're seeing is profound set of crises, at least four, right? And I would ask people to remember that those crises won't end once That's November right. comes. Those crises are not going to end. And for example, um, AOC's ability to be in Congress is a direct result of the political crisis of the Democratic Party. She, she, you know, she was smart. She did her, you know, door knocking and all that. But she and her ability in the squad in general, let's say, um, they were able to rise because people got sick of the old school. 
politicians, right? And I think that that's a very important sign. Um, DSA as an organization uh, has grown dramatically, as you well know, and it's and it's a good force because all kinds of left forces are in it now, right? And yes. it's it's an ability to experiment, to think, for people to use electoral stuff, and there's people who are into other things, right? So that's great because it, it, all of us on the left can sort of have a relationship to DSA, whether we're in it or out of it. It doesn't matter. We at least know there's a big organization there, right? And that's good. But we also have to have a plan. We have to have a strategy. What's our strategy? What's our, what's our long-term strategy, right? And I think what the left has lacked, and there's reasons for it historically. Part of it is the incredible repression the left went uh, through in the 60s and 70s. But what the left has lacked is formations, like political formations, where people could get educated. And learn how to do analysis and learn how to become like strategists, right? Learn how to do the political analysis that together we can sort of make interventions uh, in the political sphere. So I think that's being built, but you have to build an infrastructure. You have to build an infrastructure. The right coming to power in this country, which was culminated or the sign of it was really 1980 Reagan uh, winning the election. That goes way back to the 60s, right? And what oh, happened right. with after all the, the right wing infrastructure, Barry Goldwater, right. and, the, and it was a right. social movement. That was their conservative movement. Right. And you're in California. And we know that the, the, the proposition movement, that whole thing of cutting taxes, was about in California, it was about these white suburban people wanting to separate themselves and not pay taxes, let's say in Los Angeles, to the what they saw as an increasingly people of color city. So what yeah. we see is that the right, I mean, California has a special place because it's all these right-wiggers come out of it, but the, the right uh, worked for years. And what they did is they connected to a base called the evangelical Christian, white Christian community. Right. Yeah. And that became their shock troops. Right. And we have a base. We have a base of people from the age of 18 to 40. Uh, their prospects are marred by a low wage labor market, by an incredible relationship to debt. You know, people who go to college now have debts that are incredible. You know, they leave college with like thirty, forty thousand dollars worth of debt. That's a down payment for your first house. But you're not going to have a first house because you got to pay that debt off. Right. Well, and the housing costs are just crazy, too, in our area. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and in, in New Jersey, too. I live in a part of a, a town, Jersey City, in New Jersey, where I grew up, but it's gentrified now. So I think that, that these are the things we need to think about. Like, And I think DSA, as an I'm glad that they're out there and they're thinking about these things, but we got to, it's important that people go out and vote. It's important that we defeat Trump. But it's not the answer. Trump is a system, a symptom, I should say. Trump is part of the economic processes that people uh, agreed with. For example, let's think about Clinton. Clinton abolished welfare in this country, a thing that Reagan on his best day never imagined he could do, right? So we have these Democrats, what I call neoliberal Democrats or the mainstream Democrats or the centrist Democrats, who have, they're cool, like with same-sex marriage, they're cool with social things and not, but they do, they have a problem with the question of capitalism. Like they don't want to really restructure or, or change capitalism or go to socialism. So we need to realize that Clinton and Trump are very different people, 
but they sort of come from the same political economic agenda. Privatize everything. The market's a solution. The labor movement has to be domesticated and tamed. And I mm-hmm. think that what we're seeing now is it's sort of a, a breaking apart of that consensus. And people now know this system does not work. This system is so bad, it can't even protect your. Well, I, 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 I've been telling people that you know, being good on the social issues alone is not sustainable for the Democratic Party, that they do have to speak to economic issues. Otherwise, I think back to what um, Dr. Martin Luther King once said, what good is sitting at a lunch counter if you can't afford a hamburger? You know, um, exactly. s- same thing. No, no, that's definitely true. And, and I think that that's where the next revolution is, right? The civil rights movement was about a type of formal end to the apartheid system we had in this country, which is what Jim Crow was. It was an apartheid system, right? And I think people forget historically, we basically had more or less a a type of racial dictatorship until about 1964, 65 in this country, right? And that's not too long ago. Historically, 1965 is like last week, right? And we're just beginning to get to the question that Dr. King talked about, right? Um, which was uh, economic democracy. And that's what's really on the agenda. And, and that's why uh, people attack Bernie, both on his right and, yeah, really from his right, right? So Democratic elites attack Bernie, uh, certainly the right wing attack Bernie, because the Bernie movement was saying something very simple, which is we can redistribute wealth in the society. Not only can we, we should and we must. And the contradiction is that, paradoxically, Bernie and his policies and the Bernie movement policies, had they come into power, right, would have stayed the crisis, would have created some space, right? But now what we see is a quickening of the crisis. I, you know, I, when I was a young man, spent time in Central America and El Salvador and Nicaragua. And I sort of thank God I did because what I saw in El Salvador specifically is coming to pass in this country, the kind of inequality yes. and brutality that we're seeing. And I think that we're lucky that we have in this country now a movement uh, that's uh, beginning to grow and it's amongst the young people, but not exclusively. And there's a lot of people who are starting to ask the basic questions why don't we have personal protective equipment? Why didn't we have enough beds in the hospitals? Why didn't we have enough ventilators? Why didn't we have a supply of things? Very, very simple. Hospitals in the last 30, 40 years have been on a corporate model, which means you only have enough staff as you need and you only have enough beds as you can fill. That is a disaster when it comes to a pandemic. Yes. You know, because you need more staff and you need more beds. So their model, I mean, you you look at these guys on TV who are the CEOs of hospitals, which is a complete lunacy to have a CEO, you know, (laughs) for a hospital. (laughs) Right. And they're like talking about how great these people are, how they've done all this work. And my thing is like how, you know, the reason the failures that we saw at the beginning of this pandemic and is continuing is a failure of corporate health care. It doesn't work. And the, and the people who are making money like gangbusters are the health insurance companies, right? Healthcare is a human right. It should be taken out 
of the commodity market and should be a social good, right? And we need to imagine, reimagine that idea of social good and social welfare. There should be no social, there should be no welfare funds. There should be a common good fund that we all are part of, right? And we need yes. to nationalize our healthcare system, get rid of the health insurance companies, throw those lobbyists out of Washington and have a real system. But now we're seeing, you know, and people have given their lives. I mean, nurses, doctors, physicians, assistants, people who worked in the hospital, people who worked in nursing homes have given their lives to take care of people. And really more people died literally because we had a corporate healthcare system and a, a system that doesn't cover everybody. 40 million people still uninsured. Absolutely outrageous. On that note, yes, so grateful to have you as part of our movement. Thank you. So we we do want to talk about a, a little bit about your book, when it's coming out, where we can see it. Okay, so the book, should I think it should be out uh, in a year or so. It's called Love Comes in Knots, Meditations in the American Labyrinth. And basically, it's a, it's a political spirituality. It's, uh, it's within the tradition of sort of liberation theology, but it's, it's really a set of stories and then some social analysis. And the idea is to really get people who are movement people, who are thinking about the connection between spirituality and politics to reflect upon that, you know, that, that dynamic, that a lot of good political work comes from, a, 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 you know, what I call soul work and spirit, and that we need to have that as part of our mix in building a socialist movement in this country, which is really one of the most religious capitalist countries on the planet. So we need that vocabulary. We need that vocabulary. We need those stories. I mean, it's no accident that Dr. King, who was a democratic socialist, obviously, um, yeah. came out of the church, right? So so I think that the book is my intervention. It's a very different book, I have, I have to admit. If you look at my writings thus far, they've been more on the academic side. This is more directly about my experiences, what I've observed. There's definitely social science analysis and philosophy and theology and spirituality in it. And I just want to have a conversation or create a book where there's conversations around this thing because uh, we're in it for the long haul. And if you're in it for the long haul, you have to have all those aspects, the political piece, the economic piece, the community piece, the organizational piece and the spiritual piece as well. Oh, well, I'm so excited. Can't wait. And where can we follow you in the meantime? I know okay, you mentioned so, <laughs> Yeah. So I I have my uh I have a podcast called uh in a funny and not so funny way, I guess, Karl Marx ate my field notes. I'm, uh, as you know, I'm a medical anthropologist and anthropologists are famous for writing notes as they're in their field. And so it's like a joke, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a Marxist medical anthropologist sort of. So it's that, but it's basically a lot of the themes in the book I'm sort of discussing in the podcast, uh, you know, and uh, I'm, you know, I'm on Spotify. If you look up uh, Karl Marx ate my field notes and I just started a YouTube channel called Militant Tenderness, and folks can certainly subscribe. And I've done my communique number one, specifically on the COVID-19, a political analysis on the COVID-19. And I try to keep it down. I try to keep it to nine minutes in, in my little uh, interventions there. So it's it's not that long. So people can, uh, can watch it and then not get too bored. And um, yeah, so those are the two social media sites. I'm on Facebook, of course. My, I have a public 
Facebook page. Uh, people are more than welcome to come and, and friend me. And uh, the more the merrier. And I'm so happy that Democratic Socialists of America are doing this and uh, and that you're part of that movement and that I'm able to talk to you and talk to all the comrades and who are in our movement. I just want to tell people, look, it's hard what we're doing. We're going through a crisis. Uh, have faith in yourselves. Have faith in our traditions as socialists. Uh, we're the people who build tomorrow. Don't give up. Don't give up hope. This is going to be a long battle, but for sure, we're on the side, right side of history in the sense that we're on the human side of history. Amen. Thank you. Many thanks to Dr. Edgar Rivera Colon of Columbia University. Remember to follow him on, again, Militant uh, Tenderness on YouTube. I just followed you. And Thank Carl Marx, Ain't My Field, uh, Field Notes podcast on Spotify. You can follow DSA's Heart in a Heartless World podcast on SoundCloud forward slash Religious Socialism. This has been an episode of Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon. 